Um, I'm a huge podcast fan. Four Stanford <laughs> students here uh, who are interested in politics, pay attention to politics, and want to talk about politics with you. We're, we're casual people who are having a casual conversation about politics. We're not, like, pundits. We're not journalists. Overall, we probably uh, represent the broader Stanford community pretty well. Hello, and welcome to the Stanford Politics Podcast. Uh, we have a very special podcast for you today. We have an interview with former presidential candidate Carly Fiorina. This is Big League, guys. This is probably our biggest interview to date. Yeah, we were so, so, so excited when Carly Fiorina agreed to come on. And so if you don't know too much about Carly, she perhaps second most important to being a former presidential candidate is a Stanford alum. <laughs> um, that was a joke. She was also the former CEO of Hewlett Packard, which is an incredible deal. So that was, I think, early 2000s, so a little while ago. Uh, then ran for president, as you probably remember, in 2016, uh, and then rounded out the 2016 campaign season as a brief member of the Cruz ticket as vice president, uh, which obviously was relatively short-lived because Ted Cruz did not get the nomination. Um, but yeah, we were so excited to chat with her. Carly Fiorina, uh, fun fact, received a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy and Medieval History uh, from Stanford University, and she was class of 1976. Obviously very, very relevant to her day-to-day life as CEO right. of <laughs> HP. The experts say that if you want to become the CEO of major technology conglomerate, you major in medieval history. I mean, that's the only thing to do. It's the move. Uh, and before we jump into our interview, just a heads up, we had some technical difficulties here in the studio. Uh, so there is some static that will kick in about eight minutes into the interview and last for about two minutes, uh, but we were able to fix it. Um, so just bear with us here on the podcast. He, mean, he means we were not able yeah. to fix it. <laughs> well, after the two minutes that we were able to Oh, fix right, right, right. Okay, yeah. But yes. we weren't able to fix the static <laughs> the during those two minutes. And so we yeah. kind of debated over what to do about it, but there's some really good content in that two minutes, and we really liked her answer. So when you hear the static, maybe you just bump the volume down a few notches. Overall, it was a very fun, honestly enlightening interview. Um, even though I may not have agreed with her when she was running for president, I've definitely, I've always respected her as a woman and as a businesswoman. Yeah. And um, I was really solidified. Yeah, I was really impressed with what she had to say. And, you know, I I echo, I wasn't like a supporter of her campaign per se, but um, I was impressed with her at multiple points during the campaign trail, I remember, and was really impressed with what she had to say in the interview, as one would expect, you know, her being such an incredibly accomplished woman. So uh, she was also very generous with her time. So we're very grateful to her for that. Without further ado, Carly Fiorina. We're so excited that you've agreed to come on today. Well, thanks for having me. I hope you can hear me okay. Uh, All right. Fire away. Perfect. Perfect. Um, So I think the elephant in the room, if you will, uh, and what, of course, I'm sure you've been asked more times than you can count over the past year and a half is, you know, Donald, Donald Trump's the president. You ran against him as a candidate. Uh, at one point in the campaign, after you had withdrawn from the race, you endorsed him. You later withdrew that endorsement, endorsing Mike Pence instead. So a year after his inauguration, a little more, what are your thoughts? What do you think about what's going on with the administration? Well, first of all, I have to correct your record just a little bit. Okay. Uh, I never officially endorsed Donald Trump. Okay. And um, your comment about Mike Pence came about
out because of the Access Hollywood tapes. And I issued a statement as soon as those tapes came out saying that Donald Trump should withdraw from the race, that he could not be our candidate, and that Mike Pence should carry on as the presidential candidate. That clearly didn't happen, but that was my recommendation. Um, and here we are. <laughs> Uh, do you have any thoughts on how the Trump presidency has been conducting its business in the last year? Um, any opinions on particular policies or things like the tax plan? Yeah, so I, first let me just say that I think um, in leadership, uh, one learns that how you do things is as important as what you do. And uh, obviously I have a lot of issues with how this president does things. Uh, I also think it's fair to say that Donald Trump didn't start the poisonous nature of politics, although he may in some ways be um, sort of the nadir of the poison nature of politics. But politics has been poisonous for a long time. Uh, the Democratic Party long before Trump uh, spent a lot of time demonizing their opponents um, you, may, you may remember Mitt Romney, a thoroughly decent man, was accused of killing people who had cancer. Um, it, you know, this has gone on for a long time. And I start with that because I think, in fact, politics has become poisonous. It's like worldwide wrestling. Um, <laughs> everyone argues about everything. And I think Donald Trump, unfortunately, understands that very well and enjoys the fight. That's not leadership, but it is where our politics are. And I think, um, you know, as Hillary Clinton found out, uh, arguing against Donald Trump's style and personality and his tweets doesn't win. Um, policies and programs win. And so, to your specific question, um, what I try and do in the commentary that I provide uh, is to not defend what's indefensible, and much of what Donald Trump does and says is indefensible, but to try and lay out the specifics of a policy. So to your specific question about tax reform, it's actually a very good bill. Uh, I've studied it quite extensively. I think it was a political mistake for Democrats en masse to oppose it, and I think they opposed it because they opposed Trump, but if you look at the details of what's in the tax bill, there are a lot of really good things in the tax bill. Uh, doubling the standard deduction for individuals and families is actually a huge deal for people, and it means that we will have a larger cohort of people who pay no taxes at all than we have had in decades and decades, possibly ever. Uh, if you look at the impact on small businesses. You know, big business gets all the headlines, but small businesses employ most Americans. And small businesses are a larger part of the economy than big business. And when small businesses get a tax cut from 35 to 21 percent, that's a big deal. When small businesses can write off their uh, the interest on their debt or accelerate their depreciation, that's a big deal. Um, buried in this tax bill are interesting ideas like opportunity zones to attract state and private funding into 
low-income rural or uh, less, uh, let's say, smaller cities that have been forgotten in a lot of the development efforts over the last decade. That was originally a Democrat idea. It's an idea I've supported for a long time. And so the specifics of that policy, I actually think are very good. And I think it's going to make a big difference to the economy, particularly to small businesses. And speaking as a chief executive of a very large company that, like many others, parked a lot of money overseas because we would have taken such a tax hit to bringing it home. Uh, the decision to allow companies to repatriate their cash to move to a territorial tax system makes a huge amount of sense. It makes us a far more globally competitive tax system and market. And I think the most obvious uh, evidence of that is Apple Computer finally saying they're going to manufacture in the U.S., which they have not done. And now they're prepared to do, in addition to giving a lot of workers raises and uh, making investments in worker training as other com- large companies are. Uh, so I guess it's easier for someone like you who's a private citizen uh, to criticize the president, but for Republicans in Congress, um, like Marco Rubio, like Ted Cruz, uh, who might have sort of similar ideological views, but um, have to be more restrained in criticizing him, should we be holding them accountable and, and asking them to do more? Or do you think that's okay that they sort of vote with him and, and don't seem to stand up against him? Well, unfortunately, I think um, every politician of either party makes a political calculation. Uh, and again, let's be fair, Donald Trump makes those calculations agonizing for a lot of these people, but he's not the first president to have done so either. You know, I am quite sure the calculations were agonizing um, on more than one occasion during Bill Clinton's tenure. Um, and so, They're all making a personal calculation, Uh, but I would say this. I would say I am far more concerned when um, principles that people stood up and said they cared about, they seem not to care about anymore. And that, of course, is also a bipartisan affliction. So just as an example, uh, you know, when, imagine just for a moment that uh, Bill Clinton had a personal lawyer pay off someone two weeks before an election. Um, wow, Republicans would have been howling. But they're not saying much now. Or another example would be, I actually think that uh, the concentration of power is an abuse of power. And I think Republicans and Democrats alike have concentrated power, huge amounts of power in Washington, D.C. As a conservative, I believe power and money need to be distributed, decentralized out of Washington. I also believe that debts and deficits matter. And so what I'm more concerned about is that people who said they believed in those things, the distribution of power and money, debts and deficits matter. What I'm more concerned about is their silence over those issues. So, I think you know. I think you make a really good point about. I mean, obviously, it's a tough political calculation. Um, so, I, I have a sort of twofold question for you. One, would you agree with the more general statement that the Republican Party that you ran with 
and that you have been a member of for quite some time now is not the same Republican Party that exists today. And so I'm interested to hear whether or not you agree with that statement. And then as a second component, um, you know, how do you view your role going forward as a member of the party? And do you think that, you know, you do your ideological beliefs still comport with those of some of your colleagues and political um, allies that have been close to you in the past? Yeah. So, you know, let me answer that, uh, begin to answer that by quoting George Washington just for a moment. Bear with me. Um, George Washington said in his farewell address, beware the rise of political parties, because political parties will come to care only. And I think the truth is that has happened to both parties, and it's been happening for a long time. And maybe Donald Trump makes it obvious, but I would argue the Democrat Party isn't what it was 10 years ago either. And what happens when you care only about winning, and I think we're there, and I think as citizens we need to be concerned about that. I think when you care only about winning, you uh, go to the strongest elements of your party. By strongest, I mean the people who come out to vote and the people who give money. And unfortunately, the strongest elements of both parties tend to be the loudest and they tend to be the most extreme. And I think we've been seeing that for a while and I think we continue to see that. And I think that's a grave concern. So yes, I, um, I think the Republican Party cares more about winning than anything else. I think exactly the same thing can be said of the Democrat Party. People wanna win and it, you know, we can go into this if you'd like, but if you look at the whole way the primary system was set up, it, it was all set up to win fast, <laughs> as opposed to have a rigorous debate. Right. So, yes, I am concerned that politics, as the art of winning, has become everything. And a discussion and the pursuit of compromise around sensible policy, undergirded by real principles like power concentrated is power abused, and we got way too much power in Washington, D.C., that that, uh, we don't seem to see a lot of that right now. So switching gears a little bit, uh, you're a woman in politics, you've been a woman in business, uh, and specifically even within tech, and these are all areas where we've seen a lot of talk recently about harassment, specifically like sexual harassment. Um, so given that, we'd just love to hear your thoughts on the Me Too movement and everything that's been going on in that frontier. Well, let me begin by saying that um, while I have fortunately uh, never been assaulted um, or abused in some of the ways that you read about these days, I've experienced virtually everything else. And every woman I know has. Um, harassment, abuse, assault, all of it is an abuse of power. Sex is the weapon, but actually it's about power and the abuse of power. And unfortunately, women are usually less powerful than men. And so while you certainly see men and boys abused, for example, by priests in position of power over young boys, 
generally speaking, the harassment, the assault, and the abuse is by men towards women because women don't have the power. What's uh, really distressing is that we keep having revelations about this. You know, this um, just horrific case of uh, the doctor, Larry Nasser and the uh, gymnasts. You know, you read all of that, you listen to these young women's testimony and you think, oh my gosh, this can just never happen again. And yet, if you go back several decades, you will find that there was a relatively similar case with a swim coach and his female swimmers. And what you also find is that in virtually every case, people knew. People knew. There were allegations made. There were rumors. There were whispers. When people express shock, oh my gosh, shock at Harvey Weinstein, shock at Roger Ailes, shock at whomever, it turns out actually that a lot of people weren't shocked. And I think that's what's really troubling. And that's, I hope, what perhaps will change now. I wrote an op-ed on this when, uh, in the fall last year, and I said, you know, women keep having to speak up, and I hope that women will continue to speak up and feel heard, but this isn't going to change unless men decide, I am no longer going to respect an abuse of power by another man. I'm not, I'm no longer going to wink and, you know, look the other way. I'm no longer going to tolerate a situation in any industry where half the talent, because women are half the talent in the world and in this country and in virtually every business, where half the talent is sort of passed over because men in positions of power abuse that power. I will also very quickly say, for every horrific, I said I've experienced virtually everything I have. I mean, my first business meetings were in strip clubs. I've been told, you know, you'll get promoted faster if you sleep. Everything you can imagine has happened because it's what happens in male-dominated industries, particularly when I was coming up. And I was, I could tell you horrific stories from the campaign trail, but... I would also quickly say that the vast majority of men are good men. And these abuses, I mean, for every story I could tell you about men behaving in an abominable way, I could tell you 10 stories about men who have given me a chance or a helping hand or been fabulous colleagues and mentors. And so men, as well as women, have to decide that people who abuse their power are no longer going to be tolerated or respected. And then maybe these stories won't happen every decade or so. Um, I know a lot of people call the Me Too movement a relatively like liberal, um, left of center um, movement. Do you think, what, what, is, what are your thoughts on that? And do you believe there's a space for conservative women in this movement? Well, you know, unfortunately, a lot of these things get politicized quickly, and, and it's a shame. Um, in a way, the word feminism got politicized. Um, you know, there are 
left-leaning groups like Emily's List called my candidacy for the presidency an offense to women because I didn't agree with them on certain issues. So when we start to say that that um, you have to be a woman of a certain kind to be heard or to be valued by other women, that's a big problem. And so um, I hope that the Me Too movement uh, doesn't become politicized. But I agree that there are things about it that um, trouble me. Now, by the way, again, let me just say, I think hypocrisy and an abandonment of principle are bipartisan afflictions. And so you can see on both sides, you know, you can see women of a liberal bent jumping out with glee to uh, highlight misbehavior or abuse of power by conservative men, and you can see the same thing happening on the other side. And what we all ought to be saying is, you know what? Politics has nothing to do with this. And what a woman chooses to uh, think about certain issues have nothing to do with this. The abuse of power, using sex, harassment, assault, abuse as a weapon in that abuse is intolerable has nothing to do with politics. So I want to jump back just a little bit to, you know, you were talking about some of the remarkable experiences you've had as a woman in business and politics. And you said, you know, you've you have lots of stories from the campaign trail. I mean, I think one of the, the most remarkable moments from your at least career on the public stage is when you were literally on a public stage at the Republican debate. And you are the sole woman, and there are, I don't remember the exact number, 12, 15 other men on the stage. A lot. A lot of men, on the, a lot of ties on the stage with you. And one of those candidates, who is now the president, had just made unspeakably offensive remarks that, you know, I'm sure you remember word for word, and we don't need to repeat on air. Um, what is that like? I mean, how do you hold your own? How do you, I mean, you're a strong woman, you're a powerful woman. What, how do you deal with that? What is that emotion like? How do you break through with those, with that kind of environment? Well, you know, first I would just say at a very basic level, sometimes people would say to me, wow, you know, wasn't it, wasn't it difficult to, to be on a stage with so many men? And of course, being on a presidential debate stage is an experience like none other. But being with a bunch of other men was not a new experience. <laughs> and so what I would say is I've always been with a bunch of men, and I've always competed against a bunch of men. And so in truth, I think the men were almost more uncomfortable than I was. Mm. And I think actually that's true. I think there were men on that debate stage who didn't quite know how to handle certain things. Right. Um, now, Donald Trump just happens to be a um, equal opportunity insulter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you may remember he insulted literally everyone on that stage. Right. Everyone on that stage, over and over and over and over again. And so at one level, I didn't take it personally. At another level, it is true that Donald Trump tends to focus a lot on what women look like. And uh, many of his comments with regard to me were about my physical appearance, and that's inappropriate in any setting. Um, and so 
I wasn't surprised that Donald Trump was insulting me. Um, there were, I guess I would say there were other, there were other things that happened that were almost more shocking to me than Donald Trump insulting me. Uh, in fact, in that same, you know, famous debate, I assume the one you're referring to, uh, look at that face debate, probably 10 minutes before then, he had insulted Rand Paul's hair for three minutes. Right. You know, pretty rich coming from Donald Trump. But um, <laughs> I think the, the uh, things I found more shocking, I can recall at another debate, um, and I made an opening statement, and as you do in those debates, you try and introduce yourself to people, tell a little bit about your story in a short period of time, and a uh, commentator, a quite well-known commentator um, on the conservative side, uh, made the comment and said, oh, well, Carly Fiorina just played the vagina card. Oh, Lord. Wow. Wow. So this is that was off so, the record, I assume. That's not that was not. No, it wasn't record. off the record. I mean, he was tweeting this. Oh wow! Oh, wow. this is on Twitter. So, okay, I see. So I guess because I'm the only woman on the stage, I'm reduced to my gender. When all these men are telling their stories all the time, it's that kind of um, that to me was more shocking than Donald Trump insulting my appearance. Right. So switching gears uh, away from politics, um, automation and, and sort of robotics are becoming just a huge growing concern for Americans, for especially people working blue collar jobs. Um, and here at Stanford, we sort of are seeing the forefront of a lot of that. And you were the former CEO of HP, a major tech company uh, here in the Bay Area. So how do you see automation changing our economy and, and what should we be doing uh, you know, as citizens and also in politics to sort of prepare for that change? Well, first, of course, I think if we look at technology over time, what you find is that each new technology that's introduced creates fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Going all the way back to the cotton gin. And there is a adjustment period where people have to figure out how do we deal with this new technology. And yet what tends to happen over time is the introduction of new technology improves productivity and the economy is strengthened and jobs are created. That is not to say that there isn't real disruption in that process, and that disruption can be painful to a family or to a community. So it's not to say we shouldn't worry about this, but it is to say that I think it's an overstatement when when people start um, crying wolf too soon and saying, oh, you know, this is the end, this is the end, this is universally going to be a terrible thing. It's not. In fact, if you look at... Uh, if you go back in time, look at some of the articles that were written when robotics came in onto the manufacturing floor in the auto industry. There was a lot of uh, fear um, generated. This is going to mean the end of the auto industry, the end of the auto worker. And in fact, over time, there was an adjustment where... Uh, manufacturing efficiency and productivity was improved dramatically and jobs were created. 
in the process, of course, the nature of the job changed dramatically as well. And so I think robotics underscores, perhaps, in a very dramatic way that without the right educational foundation, and indeed without lifelong education and worker training that goes on year after year after year after year, then people are going to be left behind very, very quickly. The second point I would make is I think as technology becomes as awe-inspiring as it is becoming, we have to do some old-fashioned thinking about ethics. And nobody ever wants to do that, but it's really important too. I think our culture today sort of blasts past issues of you know, values and character. We don't tend to um, focus on that much. We tend to focus on outrageousness and conflict as opposed to values and character in our culture. But the reason I think we need to really examine these ethical questions is because there are a whole set of things that we clearly can do now. But it's not clear we should. And um, so... I think our ability to have an ethical conversation, our moral compass as individuals, as students, as a nation, needs to get more and more finely tuned because I think the technology is moving a lot more rapidly than our um, sense of ethics, honestly. I'm curious about um, – so I know we, we said we're moving a little away from politics, but I want to connect it back to politics because I think you know you must have had a really interesting experience as – I mean, you were the chief executive of HP, which is a massive company, you know, legacy tech company, massive corporate institution. And then you know many years later, you start traveling the country campaigning for president, and you're going through Iowa, you're going through New Hampshire, you're going through these states, and you're trying to connect to, talk to – hear the issues of, quote-unquote, regular folks, you know, who aren't in Silicon Valley, who aren't wrapped up in the latest technology and the, uh, you know, the issues of automation. Um, what was that experience like for you? I mean, do you think it radically changed how you perceive the world and how you perceive maybe the world that you used to work and live in? And I don't know, I'm just curious what that was like for you in terms of growth and your mindset. Well, um First, I would say I have spent, you know, a lot of time uh, in my life um, traveling all over the country and all over the world. And I will tell you that um, the biggest surprise to me was how different a conversation with Iowans, let's just pick that, was from the conversation on national television. Right. And the Iowans put the national conversation to shame. Most Americans do, actually. The, the typical conversation that goes on, you know, in um, a media setting, and I'm not making a left or right comment here, that the way, um, you know, the slogans, the sound bites, the... the um, 
verbal fist fight that goes on is not the way people talk about the issues that affect them. Maybe some people do, but most people don't. Most people aren't political activists. Most people are just trying to do the best they can. And they're trying to do the best they can in a world that is changing very, very, very rapidly. And so that creates angst and anxiety. I think, honestly, having spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley, I would say Silicon Valley is quite self-absorbed. We, we know that Valley, well as Stanford students. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Silicon Valley is a self-absorbed place. And so um, too many people in Silicon Valley think that they're just smarter than everyone else. And so just let us figure it out for you. And so the thing that I would say, and I, I've said this for years, and I, it was reinforced for me running for president, never underestimate how smart people are. And never underestimate how capable they are. And when anybody gets in their little cocoon and decides that they're smart enough to decide for other people, that's going to be a problem. That cocoon could be Washington. And that's why you saw so many Americans just get so frustrated and fed up and just say, you know what, I'm sick of these people telling me that they're smarter than me and they're going to decide for me. But Silicon Valley needs to pay attention to that because people get tired of being told by others, I'm smarter, you know, just leave it to me. People want to be in charge of their own life and most people are capable of doing so. Um, so clearly it's been a year or more since the presidential campaign. Um, so what exactly have you done since then? What are your plans for the future? Um, any personal projects that you're working on um, that you would like to let us know about? Well, the thing that uh, I really am most passionate about now, and it's something I've been passionate about for a long time, um, but I've really uh, pushed this forward, is... Let me. It's called the Unlocking Potential Foundation. Uh, you can go. In fact, it was written up in the uh, Stanford Magazine recently. Uh, you can go on to CarlyFiorina.com and and link to it. But I am passionate, based on my experience, about the reality that everyone has more potential than they realize, and in particular, people have the potential for problem solving and leadership. And leadership is always the catalyst for problem solving. Uh, leadership isn't about your title or your position. It's about whether you see possibilities in the circumstances around you and work with others to solve problems. And so the Unlocking Potential Foundation is focused very specifically on community-based nonprofits and helping people lead from where they are because we have really pressing problems in our communities, and these uh, community-based organizations are mostly the ones who have to deal with those problems. Uh, and so we have put together a curriculum uh, that's based on, you know, decades of experience. We have a network of coaches. We uh, take people through an intensive, uh, what we call leadership lab. Uh, our training focuses on the fundamentals, disciplines, and behaviors of leadership, which include courage, 
character and the humility and empathy to collaborate effectively, the ability to see possibilities, particularly in other people, but also in circumstances. And we also focus on a set of very basic but very powerful tools to help people get from where they are to where they think they want to go. In other words, to make progress solving problems. And we focused it on community-based organizations in the nonprofit sector because that is a sector of our economy that deals with incredibly difficult challenges. They are under-resourced. Of course, they're under-resourced in money, but more than that, actually, they're under-resourced in an investment in leadership capacity. So it's very common. Stanford, there are huge investments in leadership development. In private companies, there are huge investments in leadership development. In the nonprofit space, not as much. And so that's why we're focusing our attention there. And the other thing that I hope I uh, do is um, when I communicate publicly is to try and separate politics and policy and politics and principle and let people know what my principles are and what I think of various policies. And I do a lot of public speaking in that regard. Well, I guess we we couldn't let you go without asking you. So you entertained the concept of a 2018 Senate bid in Virginia, which, unless we're incorrect, you have since confirmed is not your plan. Um, but what about 2020? Could we see a Carly Fiorina name on the ballot in 2020? Oh, who knows? You know, <laughs> I've, I've been around the block enough times. I have learned. Never say never. Never say never. I'm certainly not preparing that for that at the moment. But, you know, uh, you just never know. Uh, I think to uh, run for any office, there has to be the right set of circumstances. Uh, and so I am not a person who predicts the future. I never have. But I am a person, I think, who understands opportunities when they're in front of me. So we'll see what life brings. In the meantime, um, I have not an ounce of regret about that presidential campaign. We got a lot further than people expected us to. It was a privilege to do it. Um, I hope I made a difference in the conversation. I believe I did. And I'm uh, extremely gratified by all of the things that I'm engaged in now. All right. Well, we'll take it. And just to wrap up, we never let any Stanford alum go from the podcast without asking a few Stanford-specific questions. So will you tell us what freshman dorm you lived in here on the farm? Yes. I lived in Loro at Florence Moore. Okay. Ooh. Very nice. Very nice. And if you had to pick, what would you say is your favorite memory from your time here at Stanford? Other than this interview, which we know is, is <laughs> up there. Oh, my favorite time. Wow. Or um, one of your favorites. One of my favorite times. Hmm. You know, <laughs> this will be a funny, may not be a very satisfying answer to your question, <laughs> but I remember... It was actually the very first day I arrived at Stanford. I remember I had I had come from North Carolina. I graduated from high school in North Carolina, and I had flown across the country uh, with a fellow North Carolinian, a guy who was in my high school who was also going to Stanford. So, you know, we say a cheerful goodbye. I was very close 
with my family, tearful goodbye to my family. We get on this long plane, and getting from North Carolina to Stanford wasn't easy then. There were no direct flights, you know, so, all right, it's a long and terrible day. <laughs> and um, finally we get there, and that evening, I don't know whether they still do this, but that evening there was a folk dancing uh, event by the faculty club. And it was just for students and faculty, and they were teaching folk dancing. And I remember going and spending several hours, and it was just this wonderful feeling of uh, learning and companionship and trying something new and not really knowing anybody but still feeling very much at home. Sounds like a great memory, and that's a great place to end our conversation. So thank you so much again for taking some time out of what we know is a really busy schedule to join us. Uh, we've really enjoyed the conversation and uh, wish you all the best, of course, in your future endeavors and hope you keep making our school very proud. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. There is such a thing as the art of the question, and you guys are very good at the art of the question. That's what makes for a good conversation. And uh, give my best to everybody on the farm. We will. Thanks so much, Carly. Have a great evening. Thank you. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you so much uh, for listening to our interview. We hope you enjoyed it. I uh, just want to end with a quick shout-out to KZSU for letting us use their studio to record. Uh, if you have any questions, if you want to be a guest on our podcast, uh, feel free to tweet us at s underscore p underscore podcast or send us an email at stanfordpoliticspodcast at gmail.com. Um, and if you're thinking about, you know, I don't know, a big one in the 28 midterms, a 2020 presidential run, this is really a show that's shaping up to be an important platform for the candidates who are going to go on to shape the future. So, um, you know, Cory Booker, uh, Elizabeth Warren. Kamala Harris, um, Mitt Romney in Utah. <laughs> I mean, you guys are, you know, you guys need to come on. because Hillary Clinton, Michelle Obama. For a Obama. sec, I didn't even, uh, I couldn't okay. even cast well, it joking because well, no. we have such high podcasts. <laughs> right. I know. Right, we're cutting all of that. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for Anyway. <laughs> we, uh, we hope you enjoyed the pod. Bye. <laughs> Bye.